Let's continue our study of <clears throat> our confession of faith, and we have reached the monumental point of going to another paragraph. <laughs> we, we've gone quite slowly, or at least deliberately, through paragraph one of chapter two because we're talking about our great and glorious God, and a subject such as that, to call it a subject, is worthy of meditation, it's worthy of contemplation, and so I make no, make no apology for the rate at which we've been proceeding through chapter two. And now we come to paragraph two of chapter two, and there's a handout which you probably have, but it will be very useful for you uh, to follow along with the points of this Sunday school lesson, including reading from uh, chapter two and paragraph two in our confession of faith, which reads as follows. Here's what we confess. God, <clears throat> having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. Now, we saw in the first paragraph a progression through negative, positive, and relative attributes, not necessarily perfectly divided into those three, but distinguished uh, among those three and more or less divided between them. And paragraph two is a little bit different. Paragraph two does not so much go through further attributes of God as it does explain God in, in relation to creation uh, and answers certain questions about his being and about his uh, sovereignty and about his knowledge. We'll come to his knowledge later in this paragraph where God's knowledge has already been asserted in paragraph one, but the independence of his knowledge uh, is asserted in paragraph two. And if there's a, a central theme to paragraph two, to what we've just read and what follows after it, I would, we could say that the theme of this paragraph is God's independence. Independence. But think about that word in a, in a rather technical way. Independence. Not depending on anything. God has made all kinds of things outside of himself, but when we consider God in relation to what he has made, it was not for any dependency or any need or any lack, as we will see in just a moment. So the independence of God is the overall theme or the common denominator of paragraph two of chapter two. So the independence of his life, the independence of his glory, the independence of his goodness, uh, and so on and so forth. That's what we're going to see this morning in what we assert, which means that there's some repetition in this paragraph. There are certain things that were already established in paragraph one, but now they're described in a new way in relation to creation, answering certain questions that may arise um, when we think about God in relation to creation. So as you can see in the outline that I've prepared or the handout that I prepared, we'll talk about God's life, his glory, his goodness, that he is the fountain of all being, that he has sovereign dominion. And then I want to spend the most of our time on speaking of God's blessedness or felicity or happiness. But let's begin 
with the first one, which is the independence of God's life. And we read in the scriptures in John chapter 5 and verse 26 that Jesus says this. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is one of the texts that our confession points to to establish the independence of God's life. We confess that God has all life in and of himself, and that comes from John 5. Now you might say, but pastor, we've We've already confessed this in in paragraph one, when the confession says of God, whose subsistence or his manner of being is in and of himself. So if the way in which God is, the way in which God's being is, is in and of himself, then you don't need to say that he has life in himself. But the point of paragraph two is to say that God has all life in himself, and from the fullness of his life, he gives life to other things. But in so doing, he does not diminish. He's not pouring out some of his life to, ha- to give life to creatures. He's not giving up some of his being to give being to others. He has all life in and of himself, and he is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient. So this is a repetition of the aseity of God. The Father has life in himself. He's granted that the Son also have life in himself. This is the eternal generation of the Son the aseity of God. So God has all life in and of himself, and he is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Alone being only here. He, he only, he is the only one who is in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made. The second thing that we assert in God's independence is the independence of his glory. The scriptures say in places like Psalm 148, 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Notice it says his name alone is exalted. Only his name, only God himself, has an exaltation that properly belongs to him just because he's him, (laughs) just because he's God. His name alone is exalted. So we attribute glory to God but his glory is independent. As you see later in this paragraph, it says that God having made all things, he doesn't derive any glory from the things that he has made. He's not getting more glory from the things that he has made, but rather in making them, it says he manifests his own glory in what he's made and by what he's made and unto what he has made and upon what he has made. So creation is not the the source of God's glory or an additional source of God's glory. It's simply the theater of God's glory. It's where he manifests his glory. But in creating the world, he does not make himself more glorious. And even when we praise God or glorify God, we do not make him more glorious. His name is alone exalted in, in himself, the independence of his glory. And so we glorify his name not because he's lacking glory and we fill it up with our praises, but we praise him and glorify him because he is in himself glorious and there is no other. Whom else could we glorify that has glory in themselves? None. But God has all glory in and of himself, and he does not need any creature. He doesn't get any glory from his creatures, but rather he shows his glory in and by and upon, or unto and upon his creatures. We'll come back to this later in the lesson, the question of, well, then, 
why do we say that we glorify God? What does it mean to give glory to, to God? That's the common language of scriptures. We'll, we'll answer that. We'll come back to it. But for now, we are seeing that we assert the independence of his glory. He has all glory in and of himself, and he doesn't derive any glory from what he's made, but rather he manifests his glory in creation and in his creatures. The third thing that we assert God has in and of himself is, is goodness. And this is something we, we touched on previously in the positive attributes and the relative attributes. God's positively good in and of, in and of himself. Relatively, his goodness to creatures is his love. Here again, we come back to his goodness. Psalm 119 and verse 68 says, You are good, and you do good. From the fullness of your goodness, you do good to creation. From the fullness of your life, you give life. From the fullness of your glory, your glory is manifested. From the fullness of your goodness, you do that which is good. God has all goodness in and of himself. He does not, he's not good because of some other reason. There's nothing outside of God that makes God to be good. The actions of God that show his goodness simply show his goodness that he possesses in and of himself. So when we say, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, we're not making him gooder. <laughs> we're just declaring his goodness that he has in and of himself. Gooder is not a word, of course. <laughs> but it is now. <laughs> and we declare, we confess that God is the fountain of all being or the creator of all things. We confess he is the alone or the sole, the only fountain or source of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. That's, of course, coming directly from Romans 11.36 and Paul's doxology at the end of that chapter. For from God and through God and to God are all things, to him be glory forever. And so God, again, from the fullness of his life, gives life. From the fullness of his being, he gives being, and he is the fountain of all being. This is another, another way of um, avoiding any kind of, of dualism. Well, there is eternal good and evil. There is God and something other than God forever, and, and the two are, are dual. No, we, we say there is God and only God, and then God speaks into existence all other things. There is no dualism. One, one theologian, like Peter Jones, said, the mark of a good theologian is that uh, he can count to two, God and not God. <laughs> I, I may be getting his quote wrong, but he said something like that. He also said he was the fifth beetle, so I don't know if you can trust things he says. But, but you could trust him. God is the fountain of all being. He, he is not, remember we said this when we talked about his aseity, he is not a subspecies of being. Well, there's being, and then there's God being, and then there's creature, creature, creature being. No, God has say being. There's none other. He is the one and only one who exists in and of himself, whose subsistence is in and of himself, who has life in and of himself. And then he gives created being to all other things. He is at the top. He is the fountain of all being, and he is the sole and sufficient explanation for his own existence or subsistence more properly expressed. For from him are all things, and through him are all things, and 
to him are all things. What results from God being the the soul or the alone fountain of all being and him making everything means it belongs to him. He, He made everything, so it belongs to him. Therefore, he has sovereign dominion over all the works of his hands, which is all things. And the the confession of faith here points us to Nebuchadnezzar's recognition of the dominion of God recorded in Daniel chapter 4. After Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his reason, after living like an animal for a period of time, he says this, Daniel 4, 34 to 35, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, again, this is a repetition because in paragraph one of our confession, we asserted the liberty of God, where we said that God is most free. And we said that God, quoting from scripture, is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. But now we come to paragraph two, and we think about God in relation to the world that he has made, not just God in himself, but God in relation to the world. And we say, He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. Nebuchadnezzar recognized that it was the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth over which God has sovereign dominion. So all things made, visible and invisible, God has dominion over them. He made them. And he can do as he pleases because it pleases him. And no one can stop him. No one can question him and say, what have you done? He is independent and sovereign, and he has dominion over all the things that he has made. Now, as his, his people, we rejoice <laughs> that he is sovereign and has dominion over all things, that the, the world is not a runaway train uh, that cannot be stopped except by some ter- terrible force of destruction or, or otherwise, Rather, God is leading all things and guiding all things to the perfect ends for which he has decreed them for his own glory and for the good of his people. So there was quite a bit of of repetition in these things. We see the aseity of God, the goodness of God, the the liberty of God, which we we already asserted in or confessed in paragraph 1 of chapter 2. So I would like to dedicate the rest of this morning's Sunday School to God's blessedness. We confess that God has all blessedness in and of himself. What what does that mean, God's blessedness? And this is something that's not often talked about, at least that's my perception. Um, Pastor Steve Meister preached about it at the quarterly gathering in Ontario two years ago, if I remember correctly. but it's not something we often hear about, although it's really, it runs throughout the scriptures. The blessedness of God, the felicity or happiness of God. These three words I'm going to use interchangeably, blessedness, 
felicity happiness. When you hear felicity, some of you will think of the American girl doll, felicity. The word felicity means happiness. Felicidad in Spanish. Feliz nuevo año. Happy New Year, Feliz Cumpleaños, Happy Birthday, Felicidad, Felicidades, happiness, blessedness, well-being. And God is eternally blessed. God who is blessed forever, the scriptures say in many places. But it's interesting that the scriptures use two different words to describe God. Um, let's transliterate these. I hadn't planned to do this. One would be, So think of it, a eulogy. A eulogy is a good word about someone. So God is said to be blessed because he, uh, we, we bless the name of God. He is eulogetos. He is blessed. We, are, we bless him. He, he is God blessed. Uh, as we, we speak good things about God, as we praise his name, we bless his name, so the, therefore he is the blessed God. The scriptures speak of him this way many times. He is the blessed God, the one whom we bless. But it also speaks of God by the Greek word makarios, uh, which is the kind of word that's used for the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man who, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, uh, etc. And that kind of blessedness is a, a happiness. It's a contentment. It's a peace. It's a blessedness that you possess in yourself. And so both of these words are, are complementary. But it's really this kind of blessedness that we're talking about, uh, and Paul uses that word to describe God, God who is blessed forever, uh, who is in himself happy, who is in himself content, who is in himself uh, pleased with himself because of himself. Now, where does the blessedness of God arise from? Where does the blessedness of God come from? And we're going to read several quotations uh, from wise theologians of the past who will give us a, a helpful understanding of this. The first one comes from John Tillotson, who said, happiness is no other than a fixed and immovable state of contentment and satisfaction of pleasure and delight, resulting, so where does it come from? From the secure possession and enjoyment of all that is good and desirable that is, of all excellency and perfection. And then to sum that up, he says, felicity, or happiness, blessedness, naturally results from perfection. So let's go from a lesser analogy to, to a greater. The lesser, he's talking about possession. It's Christmas Day, and you've been hoping for a Lego set, or a puppy, or something. When you have it in your hands, when you possess that thing, then you are happy. <laughs> then you are happy. Your happiness is in the possession. If someone takes away your Lego set or takes away your puppy, what happens? There goes your happiness. A few Christmases ago, we bought uh, my son, who will remain nameless to protect his identity. We bought Owen uh, a little drone, not a big fancy drone, but a remote control drone that will go where you send it. And we took it outside, he and I, and it was the joy of Christmas morning. <laughs> but the drone started to go up and up more, further away, further away. 
and it wouldn't come back, and it just flew off Christmas morning as we both just watched it go and, and tried to chase it, and then it lodged way up in one of the big pine trees at the school across the street, and we looked and looked and looked and, and despaired because it wouldn't, wherever it was, we couldn't find it. It wouldn't move, and when he had the drone, he was happy. But as the drone drifted away and we watched it in, in panic and fear and dread and unhappiness, the loss of the possession of that good meant the loss of the possession of happiness. If possession of good means happiness, and if God has all goodness in and of himself, then he is perfectly and eternally happy because he possesses securely all goodness, the sum of all goodness. He, in fact, he doesn't ascribe to some goodness. He is goodness itself. So the happiness of God, the, the blessedness of God, comes from his own perfection, from his own having all life, glory, and goodness in and of himself. Therefore, he has all blessedness. There's no lack in God. There's nothing that, that goes away from him, and he says, oh, no, I'm unhappy. He, he possesses securely and perfectly, eternally and immutably, all perfection and goodness. So felicity naturally results from perfection, from the possession of perfection. The, the analogy from the lesser to the greater is happiness comes from possessing a good. We have all kinds of lesser goods like chocolate, that the possession of which makes us happy. But if God has all, all true goodness and lasting goodness in and of himself, then to the greatest degree, he is eternally blessed. Let's see some other theologians giving the same argument for the happiness, the blessedness, or the felicity of God. This is coming from uh, James Usher. He asks, question, what call you the perfection of God's essence? His absolute constitution. And remember here in these kinds of contexts, the word absolute is going to mean without relation to other things. His absolute constitution, the way in which he is, his being in and of himself. What is the perfection of his essence? His being in and of himself by which he is wholly complete within himself and consequently needs nothing without himself or outside of himself, but alone suffices himself, having all things from himself and in himself, or thus, another way of saying the same thing, perfection is an essential property in God whereby whatsoever is in God is perfect. Next question, what arises from the perfection of God? What arises from perfection? Answer, all felicity and happiness, all endless bliss and glory. Question, what is the felicity of God? It is the property of God whereby he hath all fullness of delight and contentment in himself. Question, what learn you from the perfection of God? That he is to seek his own glory and not let the glory of any in all that he wills or wills not, does or leaves undone. You see how Mr. Usher moves from the possession of perfection and independent perfection to the possession of happiness and blessedness. 1 Timothy 1.11, that's where we get the blessed God, Theos Makarios. Because God possesses, possesses all perfection in and of himself, therefore he is happy, and since nothing can, can mar or diminish that the perfection of God, nothing can make him happy. He possesses it in and of himself, Nothing can make him happier. He's already perfectly perfect. Nothing could make him unhappy. 
There's no, there's no rain on God's parade. <laughs> nothing can ruin his day. Nothing can make God unhappy because nothing can take away from him his possession of his own perfection. That raises questions, though. But doesn't God become angry with his people? Uh, doesn't God become angry with his creatures who disobey him and such things? What about all the wickedness of the world? Doesn't the wickedness of the world in some way uh, perhaps affect the happiness of God? The answer is no. And then conversely, but what about when we please God, when we are said to, to please him by our righteousness and our holy acts of goodness? If, do, does unrighteousness harm God and does righteousness help or, or make God happier or please him? The answers are, are going to be yes and no. Let's look at some scriptures. Not yes and no to the other, but yes and no to both. Job chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. Can a man be profitable to God? Can God benefit from what man does to him? Is God bettered, improved, made profitable by what man does? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself, not to God. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is God, has God been improved by our righteousness? The answer is no, we have not improved him. Job 35, verses 5 through 8. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. So consider the, the greatness of heaven and God himself. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him, that is, against God? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, conversely, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. People are hurt by our wickedness, and people are helped by our righteousness, but we're not assaulting the happiness of God. We're not improving him to make him happier. We're not detracting from him to make him unhappy. Let's see Paul's argument, or draw an argument, from what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, or 21 to 25. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not give God glory or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Notice something with me. Verse 21, you have men not giving God the honor that he is due. In verse 23, you have men exchanging the glory of the immortal God for created images based on creatures, men or animals. Not giving God the glory and honor that he is due, recreating him in the fashion of a creature. All of this is, is highly dishonorable to God. And yet, verse 25, God's blessed forever. <laughs> None of that hurt him. None of that detracted from God's glory in and of himself. Here's some comments on this verse from Andrew Willett. 
he says, commenting on this text, God, notwithstanding this contumely, and I had to look that word up, it's a very strange word to me, comes, comes from French, which means insolent treatment. So God, notwithstanding this insolent treatment offered him by idolaters, sustained no loss thereby, he still remains blessed forever. David Dixon also commenting on this text, God is called in this place blessed forever, that we may know that the injurious carriage or the, the behavior that would cause injuries to men, the, the injurious carriage of idolaters can detract nothing from the felicity of God, but that his glory and blessedness will abide forever to whom we all, to whom we all of us ought with the apostle to ascribe it saying, amen, because that's how Paul concludes the creator who is blessed forever, amen, and we say, amen. So, <clears throat> notice the independence of God's glory. It's what we confess in, in paragraph two. God having all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself, he does not derive glory from his creatures, but rather he manifests his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. And so when man fails to give him the glory due his name, God is not somehow worsened. Just as when man does what is right, God is not bettered. So why did I say yes, yes and no to each question? Because God in and of himself is not bettered by righteousness, and God in and of himself is not worsened by unrighteousness. So the yes answer comes with, but in creation, the theater of his glory, the, the loudness or the evidence and the testimony of his glory can be increased and decreased. So our good works do indeed shine before men and give glory to God, more or less. When we live wickedly, we dishonor our God. We do that which is dishonorable, and it diminishes the testimony or symphony of his glory in this world. But the felicity of God remains unchanged, and God's glory in himself remains unchanged. So you see, we can dishonor God, and we can displease him or do that which is displeasing, and we can honor God, and we can please God. But it's not changing God. Think about the absurdity of the contrary. If we say, no, God is harmed or hurt in some way by the, the wickedness of man, there are billions of, of creatures, more than we can see, the invisible creatures, who constantly disobey and dishonor God. What kind of assault would there be on the glory and felicity of God if, if the creature could somehow be diminishing grain of sand by grain of sand from from the beaches of God's felicity, it would, it would diminish, wouldn't it? But man cannot do this, and no creature can do this. God remains blessed forever, even when we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, even when we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling men and, and animals. He remains blessed and blessed forever in and of himself. But our duty in this world is to glorify him, to do that which gives him glory, ascribes glory to him, which increases the sound and the sight of the glory of God before men. And so we can fail to glorify God. We can dishonor him, but he remains unchanged. So on the, towards the end of the handout, here's a question for you. Many of you have, have heard this very well-known phrase from John Piper, where he says, God is more glorified in us when we are more satisfied in him. 
What should we think of that phrase? It has a good interpretation and it has a bad interpretation. Let's start with the bad interpretation. If it means that the more we are satisfied in God and live to please him, the more God in himself is glorified and pleased, we'd say, no, we can't accept that. God is blessed in and of himself forever, irrespective of man's righteousness or unrighteousness. So we cannot accept it if that's what it means. But if what it means is that when God's people are satisfied in him and live for his glory, then in creation, the sight and sound of God's glory is all the more glorious, then we'd say, amen, that's true. And we should live for his glory in that sense. But we are not somehow increasing the felicity of God in himself when we are felices, when we are happy in God. Now, let's go back to the idea that happiness arises from the possession of goodness. So who is the happiest man? Who's the most blessed man? It's the one who possesses the greatest good. And what is the greatest good? It is God himself. So the man who possesses God, the man who has communion with God, the man whose portion is God, Psalm 16, is blessed and happy forever. At your right hand are delights forevermore. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God, to give him glory in this world and in the, the next world, and to enjoy him, to enjoy him. We are the most blessed and happy when we possess God. And God has covenanted himself to us, to his people. So the felicity of God becomes the felicity of man when we possess the God who is feliz, the God who is happy, the God who is blessed. And that also shows us immediately how unhappy we become when we seek happiness in, in lesser goods or, that, or even more so that which is not even good, sin and all kinds of things that take us away from honoring God. Why would we ever think there's happiness in such things? God does give us happiness in lesser goods. Ecclesiastes talks about the, the work of our hands and bread and, and wine and the wife of your youth and all kinds of good things God has given us to enjoy. We're not erasing those things just because God is the supreme sum and source of all good, but he is the sum and source of all good. <laughs> and so the greatest happiness, the greatest felicity, the greatest blessedness of man consists in possession of, isn't it strange to say possession of God? But if he's given himself to us, then we have him. We receive him. And when we receive the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day, we should remember we, we possess God because he has covenanted himself to us in and through Jesus Christ. And this is the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is the reminder of that it has been secured for me. Because true happiness comes from secured possession, not the drone that flies away into the pine trees across the street, but that which cannot be lost or will not be lost. So God's happiness becomes our happiness because God becomes our God, and he is eternally blessed in and of himself. So the independence of God is not God saying, ew, creatures, I'm independent, you know, stay away from me. The independence of God is God having fullness in himself of all things, life and glory and blessedness, and then giving that from his fullness to his creatures, giving himself 
to his creatures and letting us enjoy him forever and ever, which is the highest uh, and most wonderful happiness that there can be. And we should praise him for that uh, and give thanks to him every day. So we will move on from this in, a, in subsequent lessons, continuing the idea of the independence of God, focusing more on his knowledge coming up. Uh, but this I wanted to focus especially on his blessedness or felicity and happiness, which concludes our lesson. Our lesson. Thank you.